Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. What does um, the conversation about sexuality have to do with us in a congregation in which many of our, our uh, the folks who call the Garden home are uh, single? And... Uh, especially in a culture in which singleness is uh, going to be, whether by default or by choice, uh, the, the reality for, for folks going forward uh, in increasing numbers. Uh, and what does that say to us? So we thought it would be worthwhile taking some time uh, because even though the Song of Solomon is written to address uh, sexuality within a particular uh, pattern of covenantal relationships, it still speaks to some degree to the nature of sexuality uh, as, it, as it pertains to singleness. Um, and I will say that, that w- while I'm going to try as hard as I can to keep tightly focused on what the text is, is saying and challenging us to in terms of illustration, in terms of content, uh, there may be some things that cross over the line from 13 to, to 18. We will completely avoid 17. Um, but but 18 at least. Uh, so think about that in terms of, of who you're here with. Uh, I know Darren will be doing similar kinds of things in the next couple of weeks, so that may be an important thing. Uh, one of the questions that I think is important for us is, is how do we manage our sexuality in a way that glorifies God, whether we're married or not? Is the most important thing to be said about us focused on sexuality or are there other things that are more important that that bring sexuality in their wake and redefine it reshape it especially in a culture which says that sexuality is more important than almost any other statement about you Um, in terms of whether whether it's orientation or activity that sexuality is a primary definer of identity then the second part of the question, and maybe the most important one, is why does God care about this? Why, does, why, why is, 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 is the image of God as this harsh, vindictive creator of pleasure and then limiter of pleasure? Is, is, what is that about? Why does he do that? Why does he create something of such wonder and amazement as celebrated in the Song of Solomon? And then say, you, 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 and you, but, but not you, 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 or you. Why does he do that? Is it because he's really underneath kind of mean? And that the, the lie is that God is good. Or does he know something about the sexuality the invented? That his goodness says, you know what? Goodness means there are narrow parameters within, sexu- within which sexuality doesn't damage everything. And so I want you to honor me on this. I want you to respect what I'm saying here. There are spaces and places within which sexuality is healthily expressed and other places in which it will do you harm. And my guess is, I'm not going to ask for show of hands, but my guess is that some of you have experienced the goodness of God but negatively. That is, I didn't pay attention to his goodness in restriction and now I'm paying the price 
I've discovered that sexuality unprotected by the covenant of relationship in marriage is damaging. And I'm dealing with that now and will be in my, my future relationships or this current one. So I want to talk about that because we are in a world that is so aware and focused on gender and sexuality issues and specifically, where's the what clock in here? There isn't one. Okay. Well, that's good news. Um, <clears throat> huh? You'll, you'll be the clock? Oh, that'll be helpful. Um, can I do that when I come next time? Yeah. Okay. Here's the problem. I've got, I've got so much on this that I really want to say that I think is rooted in the text of Scripture. I'm, I'm just been really praying about this, that it's not just a fire hydrant of, of noise, you know. So let's pray for some traction here on some important things and that God would give me grace not to say things that I don't need to be saying. I got this one. It's, yeah, I can't read you, mine or yours. So yours, yours doesn't have little buttons on it like mine does. Oh, that's too bad. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about just by way of introduction to get into this is the cultural framing of sexual activity as a right, as a human right. Um, I want you to think, not too long, uh, and hopefully by, by distance, of the recent entertainment models that have come out uh, last year, a movie called, um, apparently called The Sessions, in which um, a, a, a woman engages in sexual relationships with a man who, because of his health conditions, is unable to engage in normal relationships, period. And the, the rationale, as benevolent as it sounds, is that everybody has a right to sexual expression. Uh, Showtime is releasing a new series called Masters of Sex, beginning which ostensibly is going to be targeting the same idea. Uh, further, we need to resist the pervasive lie which is bubbling up in our culture, and has been for a long time, that in order to be adult, you have to be sexual. This... Uh, among other things, is what fueled the furor over Miley Cyrus's recent VMA um, performance. Um, and performance is the right word. Miley Cyrus is not stupid. She is an enormously talented young woman who is listening to the wrong counsel, in my view. But the, but the idea is, in order to be seen as an adult, distance from the Disney caricature, I have to be sexual. That there are other ways of doing that, but that, that is the primary way that our culture... And, of course, men have been listening to that language for a long time. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about is, is attraction, briefly. Does attraction justify action? Um, and it, I, 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 I'm walking with a couple right now, and we're working through issues of mistrained attraction. Attraction is one of those things that can be very, very helpful if it's trained well and very unhelpful if it's not. You will find yourself often attracted to persons who will do you harm and not attracted to people who will do you good, depending on how you perceive your own sexual self-identity. So attraction um, is... is uh, here's, here's one of the problems well, it, when it comes to singleness. 
desperation creates false attraction. If I have to be married, forget the beer goggles. I will be attracted to somebody who looks reasonably available. This is damaging, as you might imagine, in unspeakable ways to one's own self-concept because once you begin to objectify another person, you soon begin to objectify yourself. You turn yourself into an... This is what Jesus is saying. Don't be looking on a woman with the purpose of lusting after her. Jesus doesn't say, don't look and lust. He recognizes that desire is built into the human person and that when we see somebody who's attractive to us, there is a desire, there's a surge on. He just says, don't cultivate that. And second, don't be looking to lust for the purpose of the cultivation of that. And so we want to push back on some of this stuff. Um, and and it, I, I, I didn't ever need to say this in my uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada congregation, but I need to say it here. We need to think about the role of alcohol as it impacts our self-understanding of sexuality. I just I want to put that on the table and say, if that's off the table, then we might as well not be talking about anything because that is a fundamental to the, to the opening of the door uh, of, of uh, I, w- I will argue, damaging sexualized uh, culture, especially in the pornographied culture in which we currently live. So how do we frame, how do we understand sexuality so that uh, modesty is celebrated as a virtue, not something to be pitied? pitied? Uh, I'd like you just to look with me at Genesis uh, uh, 1, uh, 27. It just says, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The point that I want, and Miguel, I think, yeah, uh, can you just hang on, keep that one up for a sec? We are not first male and female. We are first image of God expressed as male and female. Identity is locked and loaded in this relationship before it's expressed in these relationships. That's a critical understanding as we think through it. The image of God in community means each of us must be fully ourselves. Women must be fully women, men must be fully men. And it is important that we understand that sexual activity is not necessarily part of being fully woman or fully man but sexual identity as male and female is. Our culture has morphed those two things together in such an inextricable way that we can't imagine what it means to be a man or a woman without sexual activity, but the scripture requires it. It invites us into a healthy self-understanding as male and female in mutually honoring and honorable relationships. One of the things that has been damaged by the pornographication and sexualization of our culture is the inability of men and women to work together in healthful relationships without sexuality becoming part of the conversation. And brothers and sisters, for the sake of the kingdom of God, we've got to put an end to that. Especially in the church, we have got to put an end to a limitation on our capacity to work together with men and women without sexualizing the relationship as we walk in the room. The world needs us to get this right. 
And so I invite you as a member of this community here, even if you're here for the first time and never come back again, which is likely as you hear some of the other things I'm going to say. But anyway, um, uh, but I, I want you to think about what it might mean to work with a man, to work with a woman without thinking about their potential as a partner. And I, and, I, and I have to say this as well, because of the secondary cult sexualization of culture, it almost is irrelevant whether you're single or married. Because of the way that the culture has shaped our understanding and the way that we have now become in the world and of it, rather than in it and for it. So this is kind of the frame uh, that, that we, we got to get. And I, this is, even as I wrote this down, and you'll notice I'm using my notes way more than I usually do because I just, there's some landmines that I don't want to step in. So I'm trying to, and, uh, and other things. So um, you can be fully male or female without ever having had sex. This is the biblical understanding. You can be those things. So, it, and, and the, here's where it goes sideways. If the only or the primary expression of maleness or femaleness is sexual expression, the great likelihood is that that identity, male or female, is fragile and quite possibly formed in insecurity and fear. Why? The more insecure we are internally, the more we try and define identity externally. So sexual expression as the primary expression of identity reveals a fragile, insecure grip on core identity at, this, at the center. This is, by the way, are you starting to get an idea why God says, trust me on this one. I know what I'm doing here. Uh, God invented sex for three related purposes that we're celebrating in the Song of Solomon. Uh, covenantal bonding, which includes intimacy and pleasure, and babies. That's what it's for. When we disconnect it from the covenantal community in which those things are safe, then we change the nature of sexual uh, uh, focus towards pleasure. And if pleasure is the center of sexuality, sexuality diminishes into nothing more than a law of diminishing returns that requires increasing levels of the insertion of adrenaline and other uh, ways of resurging it. And you'll notice this over, over time. In the Old Testament, it is clear that marriage is the norm for the culture, but in the New Testament, this is less so. In fact, singleness is celebrated as not a, only a viable and legitimate option, but in many cases, a preferred way of discipleship. So I want to talk about uh, sexuality and single, singleness. Uh, first of all, let's get a framework here. Jesus is speaking. Uh, he has answered a Pharisee's question about divorce. Uh, and, so, um, and, and the disciples are anxious because he basically says, no, no, there is no divorce for y'all. And the disciples say, well, then who can, who can, who can, who can live with this? This is crazy talk. Because they'd grown up in a culture in which if one got tired with one spouse, one simply set her aside on the, cou on, the, on, the, on the curb. And they can't imagine a lifelong commitment in which this, was simply, this, this, this option was taken off the table. So Jesus says to them, uh, oh, no, back up. 
Do you have the one on Matthew? I emailed this so late last night. This is my fault. Can you find it, Miguel? No? Okay. So uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples say say to him, if the relationship with a man and his wife is like this, it's better for people not to marry at all. But then he said, well, look, not everybody can accept this statement. It's, it's a tough one. Only those to whom it has been given. And then he talks about three classifications of single persons. He uses the old word of eunuch, which has obviously a unique context in the first century. And I wanna, but I want to frame what he does here. There are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who were made that way by men for purposes of service in courts. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, that's interesting. Please notice what he has done here is he has shaped an understanding of a detriment to being something that may have some value and virtue. Jesus says there are three kinds of singles. The first one is those who are born single. That is to say, those who have no necessary interest or desire to marry. We need to say to those brothers and sisters, you're not odd, weird, or different. There's nothing necessarily wrong with you. That's okay. You ought not get married just because. If you're, and, and I have some close friends who have, having heard this text, said, that's me. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with sexual drive or sexual attraction. It's just that the way I am wired as a person, singleness is the, is the best option for me. I want to be able to get up and go at, 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 at any moment in response to God's call to me. I don't, want, I don't want to have to be tied down to a cultural understanding or expectation of what is enough. I want to live simply. I want to be able to respond instantly obedient with a phone call. I can be ready to go in two hours. I've got a friend who, in the last five years, has gone through three passports. Instantly responsive to what he feels God calling and telling him to do. That would simply not be possible, he thinks, were he married. Praise God for men and women who have capacity to respond, instantly obedient, without anxiety. Do you see? Second one are those who are single because nobody asked. Or because those they asked refused. Those folks want to be married. But Jesus is recognizing not everybody who wants to be married will be able to get married. Of course, Jesus also recognizes not everybody who's married wants to be married now that they're married. That's a whole other, whole other thing. But we'll talk about that later. Third thing, and I'll talk about these next two in serial. So those who are single because they have chosen to be so for the sake of the kingdom. So they weren't born that way. Maybe because of some difficulties and stresses in a marriage and they have gotten divorced and been set aside or have chosen to remove themselves from a hostile environment, a situation, or because their spouse has passed away. And they have chosen to remain single. And they are choosing it, he says, for the sake of the kingdom. They've decided that for them, this is a better way to serve. So how do those people, those three groups, handle their sexuality? First of all, we need to understand all of this. Celibacy is a spiritual discipline. And it is not a spiritual discipline only for those who are single. 
celibacy has implications for those who are married as well. It's one of why one of the fruit of the Spirit is sexual self-control. I will argue that sexual self-control is more needed in marriage than it is outside of marriage. And that if you haven't learned sexual self-control before you're married, it's a bear to learn afterwards. So this is the, this is the, the sense. Now, now we'll go to the passage that Miguel had up there on Paul on singles. I just want to set the frame. Oh, there's the one. Okay, Paul on singles, thanks. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 32, 35. Paul's writing to the church. I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried, the virgin, is uh, the never married, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in both in body and spirit. So his, go ahead to the next one. I think that's it, yeah? Okay, so what he's, what he's trying to, uh, oh, no, there's one more. We, uh, this is my fault, I apologize. Um, so um, uh, let me just read what it says. The one who's, un, uh, who's married is concerned about the things of the world as well, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate. And secure, listen to this, undistracted devotion to the Lord. What's he saying? If you're married, that's fine. Stay married. But if you're single and can, singleness is at least as viable an option for the disciple of Jesus as marriage is. In fact, single persons may have fewer distractions not necessarily, but may have fewer distractions and less concerns about divided loyalties. They're able to serve the Lord in whatever capacity without needing to also attend to a spouse. On the other hand, again, there's no harm in marrying if you need or want to. Um, but it does make things more difficult, especially in times, Paul writing here, of persecution. Uh, the, 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 uh, as, as an individual person... Uh, I can manage a certain amount of pain, but if I see pain being inflicted upon somebody that I love and care about and who have I responsibility for, my wife or my kids, that's a whole other level of pain. D- d- just, and this is what Paul is, Paul is arguing. So then what are the strategies for singles in, who are disciples? The first thing is to recognize your primary identity is not male or female, and it is not single. Your primary identity is disciple of Jesus. Whether you're married or single, that's still our primary orientation. This is, this is the hardest part of all of this, isn't it? For me, uh, and, and, and it may be for you, where, where, we, where we have to stop thinking of ourselves. We saw this here, I see this every uh, September 11th. And I have to keep pushing back on this with my students and, and with other colleagues. You're not first an American. You're first a citizen of the kingdom of God. That changes how we understand who our enemies are. We don't have the right to have enemies. I still want to function as a citizen, a responsible tax-paying person, a voting person. I want to do all that, but I have to remember that I live in a dual universe, and my primary orientation is not to the material world, but to the spiritual world. This is why we talk as often as we do about money. We'll talk about it again here in a few weeks. 
Because money and sexuality are the two primary ways that we are anchored deeply into the dirt of the material world. We want to, we want to say, no, I want to be free and understand my financial resources, my sexuality, my identity is rooted primarily with the kingdom of God in the heavens. Does that, does that make sense? So if I can kind of remember that first things are first, that's first button, first whole stuff for me. Remember what I mean by that? If you're buttoning a shirt and you get the first button in the first hole, you're probably going to be okay from there on after. <laughs> but if you somehow get the second button in the first hole, you've got a problem. I don't care how well you button thereafter. <laughs> you, you, you're you're going to end up out of whack, right? So, so, so orientation to the kingdom of God and his righteousness, first button, first hole stuff. With me? Okay, so if we get that right, if we remember that the goal is not sexual satisfaction or a happy marriage or or blissful singleness, but Christ-likeness, that will help us understand that the rest of this stuff follows in its wake. Marriage is not a promise. Sexual fulfillment is not a right. It's not an entitlement. Even if it's the desire of your heart, it's not a right. It fits within a framework of discipleship and Christ-likeness. So how do we manage this? The first thing is to remember to build core relationships with five levels of intimacy. This is Genesis 2. I don't have a slide on it, but God takes us from the dust of the earth and breathes into it the breath of life, bringing us into this liminal space, this thin space that is ideal for our identity. We are not animals. We are not angels. We are living souls. And as such, we have spiritual and physical uh, self-understanding, but also then flowing out of those two, emotional, social, and intellectual. So we're built to know and be known in all five of those dimensions. In our dating relationships and in our friendships, they are primarily engaged from the social and intellectual framework. I want to know and be known in those environments. The fastest way to disable friendship is to sexualize it. The fastest way to disable a healthy uh, dating relationship moving towards marriage is to over-spiritualize it. Jesus is really smart on this. Let the foundation build at the center of the friendship for a while before it turns sideways into a sexualization. And then it can handle the weight of appropriate physical and emotional and spiritual intimacy that gets put on that friendship. Does that, does that make sense? So that's the first thing. And the, to realize whether you're dating or not, you still re- need relationships of intimacy in those five areas. The difficulty with intimacy, as soon as we hear that word, our heads go sexual on it. Please notice that sexual intimacy is one tiny part of one part of the intimacy that we're built for. I need somebody to hold me when I weep. It's it's the physical touch that is healing. I need somebody to stand with me and hold my hand, hold me up when I am gazing into the, into the graves, grave uh, hole of, of, a, of a loved one. I need somebody who doesn't just say, I'll pray for you. Do you see? I, I, and I need those friendships. 
at, 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 all the way through the dynamic. I need, I need to know and be known, which is how I think Scripture defines intimacy in those, in those five areas. And as I, as I grow in intimacy in these areas, and it, whether in a relationship moving towards marriage or not, then uh, the, the, the dynamic of health begins uh, to, to, to be laid in. But if sexual expression is present without the foundation and the covering of covenant, it's likely to disable the other intimacies because sexual intimacy creates false intimacy. A relationship that moves in that direction too quickly simply blows through the, the, the red lights, the stop signs, the yellow lights, the speed bumps. We're just pedal to the metal because we simply are disabled from noticing what's going, going on. Um, so, so the, 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 and here now is where we come back to the Song of Solomon finally. Uh, three times in this uh, poem, in this beautiful, powerful love song, uh, the woman, which I think is significant, says this. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles, by the does of the field, which are, are symbols of sexual freedom and joy and wonder, right? I charge you by those things. Do not arouse or awaken love until it desires, until it's ready. Do you notice what she's saying here? She is recognizing the power of sexuality to shape the self. And she says, be very careful. Don't awaken this. Don't stir this until it has capacity for healthful expression, which for her and in the case of the poem is in the context of covenantal relationship and marriage. This is important to us because these texts celebrate this, and I think it's fascinating that it's the woman who says this because we live in a culture that celebrates male sexuality but here's a culture that says, no, 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 female sexuality has a power and a strength and a vibrance all of its own. And she's the one that's saying, watch out for this. This is overwhelming at times. This is powerful. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. Because the degree, she's not saying this, I'm saying this. The degree to which a person has been sexualized, whether as a sexualized child or through exposure and response to pornography, or through masturbation, influences the degree and the pace that relationships inevitably become sexualized. So the higher the level of involvement earlier, the greater the likelihood that a relationship will become sexualized later. And here's the, here's the problem. Sexualization of relationships without covenant damages capacity for healthy sexual expression in a covenantal relationship. There are some statistics that suggest if you want to double your chances of divorce, sleep with your husband or wife before you marry them. Why? Because God knows what he's talking about. This is powerful. This is important for us. And we need to honor, I think, I think we need to honor it. So cultivated sexuality diminishes competence for singleness and diminishes competence for relationships in Jesus' name. This, I think, is what she's saying and what we're invited to. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? What we have to do is say, look, 
in spite of the noise of our culture, in spite of every billboard, every beer commercial, every toothpaste commercial, everything that, I mean, that, that is selling sex sells, yes? In spite of that, we can't buy what they're selling. Because we're not citizens first of the kingdom of earth. We're citizens first of the kingdom of the heavens. And that means, can, can I be honest? Yes, I can. <laughs> Not always, but occasionally when it's useful. If you want the kingdom of God to come in Long Beach, in Long Beach as in heaven, and it doesn't affect your sexuality, then don't bother praying about Long Beach. You're the kingdom of God in Long Beach. Not the only aspect of it, but a prince, you're salt and light, right? Whether Long Beach or Seal Beach or Redondo or Huntington or Fountain Valley, wherever it is you are, you are the kingdom of God. You are salt and light. You are the ambassadors of the kingdom. Can we do something better than just try hard when it comes to managing and disciplining sexuality, whether single or married? It's, it, it, it has been, I don't know if you have been aware of some of the stuff that's been swirling around the allegations and the accusations of, a, of an, yet another pastor recently, this week, having been arrested for molesting uh, women in his congregation. And I wish I could tell you, and you know as well as I do, this is rare and unusual. Sorry, it isn't. We've got to do better. Friends, we got to do better. Not, not just for the sake of our future marriages and relationships. Because some of us, and this is not a death sentence, it's a life sentence. Some of us are invited into an embraced call to celibacy. That doesn't sound like good news until you understand that this is not our home. We're on our way somewhere. And in the meantime, I just want to be of greatest service as I possibly can be. So I want to honor the relationships in which I find myself. I want to honor dating relationships. I want to honor marriage. But I want to honor Jesus more. I want to lift him up more. Now, having said all of that, let me say this. In conclusion. We have a cult in Christianity of virginity that says, bottom line, that's the best sex you'll ever have if. And it's wrong. I just put it on the table. It's wrong. Virginity is not the highest value. Christlikeness is the highest value. What, do we, what does that mean? What that means is, if in the course of your journey, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether a participant or a victim, you have been sexualized. Because I recognize, given our, given our people group here, roughly a third of the women in the room have been sexualized either by their choice or against it. Many of you before the age of 12. And you have begun to think of yourself. And now increasingly we're finding little boys falling into the same category of sexualization 
only they have been unable or unwilling because of the nature of our culture to come forward and say, That's, that happened to me. Uncle so-and-so, next-door neighbor so-and-so, that, that's my story. And we have begun to think of ourselves through the lens of what has been done to us rather than through the lens of the redemptive grace of God in Christ. And i got to say to you, you're not damaged goods. You are precious and beloved and chosen. Now the trick is to be who you are, not who you were. That's the trick. That's what the grace of God enables. A redeemed sexuality, whether healed or not. Sometimes the wounds don't go away. I'm walking with couples in marriage who are paying the price of what was done to them when they were uh, children. Sorry, that's the reality of it. Jesus is capable of teaching you how to be righteous. You will never regain physical virginity. But you can regain redeemed virginity. And I want to challenge, I want to, I want to challenge and encourage. This is what repentance is about, friend. This is true. This is true. I think what I'm saying is true. So don't live as if it weren't. Don't live as if God is this mean guy that just simply wants to deny us all pleasure. He's not. He gets pleasure. He invented it. But he knows the damage it can do unless it's carefully stewarded. Some of us have really gotten, gotten uh, a long way down the box canyon of pornography. Both male and female. Male pornography and female pornography function very differently. But they're equally damaging. They're both about objectification. Female pornography tends to be about images and fantasies. Male pornography tends to be about body parts, but both are an objectification. They both depersonalize the person with whom we have the the imaginative affair and, and ourselves. Can we just call it what it is, friends? It's adultery. It's stepping out on your husband or wife, whether you're married or not. There's help. There's healing. There's wholeness. It's a boatload of hard work. It really is. Why? Because God can't heal you instantly? No. Because he knows we live in a sexualized culture that needs men and women of God who will discipline themselves to the glory of God for a healthy sexuality, having had it damaged in the past, choosing to walk in righteousness in the future in Long Beach as in heaven. Let's pray. As Pete and the team um, come back up, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to just sit in stillness. What is Jesus inviting you into in this? What do you need, need to pray about? Can you invite Jesus into your sexuality, even now, just sitting there? Because this cannot, cannot be about shame. Shame is never how God operates. Never. So if your response to your sense of self in terms of your being a sexual being is shame, 
please recognize where that comes from. It is not from God. Invite Jesus to push that shame out so you can deal with the root of the issue. If you have been the victim, if you have been the victimizer, if you've taken advantage of a relationship, if you have been taken advantage of, invite Jesus into that brokenness. He's the only one who knows what to do with it. Nobody in this room is smart enough to bring redemption. It might very well be that you need to say, this is a line in the sand for me. I'm walking out of this place and I'm going to do my life differently as a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're here as a single man, single woman, and you've realized, you know what? I really think this is what God's calling me to. I don't like it much, maybe. But I want to say to him, if this is it, I want to say yes to you. Because pleasing you is way more important than pleasing me. And you're willing to say, Jesus, I offer up this part. I'm going to stop trying to micromanage outcomes here. I want to offer this up to you. Others of you know that you're not called to that. But you need help learning how to be single while still being a sexual being. Invite Jesus into that too. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.